Okay, we'll get started. Thank you all for coming today. Uh, my name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. Today's event is part of our One Book, One College program, which is actually on a book called Seek You. It's a graphic novel about American loneliness. And one of the reasons that we selected that novel is we wanted to find something coming out of the pandemic to talk about like where we are as a society. And of course, one of the themes that we wanted to talk about over this year with this program is COVID-19 itself. And so this talk isn't directly about our one book selection, but it's about one of our themes that we're gonna be talking about. And so to do that, we are very honored and grateful that um, Dr. Molina joined us today. And I'll say, um, I know Chriselle from, you know, kid activities. So, I, you know, when you have smart um, friends, you should take advantage of their goodwill. So that's what we're doing today. So thank you for being here. Um, Dr. Molina is, um, is a teaching associate professor at the Department of Health Sciences at DePaul University. She holds a PhD from UCLA. And um, you know, she spends her time thinking about how we do staying healthy and how we work together and our infrastructure and all that. So I am super excited to learn more about what public health is and also specifically how we did from COVID-19. So, so thank you and thank you all for coming today. I think we're good. We're good? Okay. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. You know, when Dr. Swanson asked me to come and talk with you all, I thought, yes, first, absolutely yes. Um, because any time I have an opportunity to talk about public health, I take it. Um, public health is, you know, my background. It's how I live my life uh, every day. And it's become even more intensified through this pandemic. Um, I realize, though, that we all collectively as a society have much more knowledge and information about public health, epidemiology, infectious diseases, because we are living through a global pandemic, right? And so the title of my talk is really centered around that. I fully acknowledge that we have our firsthand experiences battling a public health emergency. So maybe to some extent we are all amateur epidemiologists, or maybe we aren't. But I wanted to, again, center this talk really around the fact that we've lived and are living through a global pandemic. We all know what COVID is. I think back to right before I started teaching at DePaul, and one of my friends asked me what I was going to be teaching, and I told her epidemiology. And she asked me if that was the study of skin which I thought was brilliant <laughs> because ology and epidermis, and again, I thought it was brilliant. And so I explained to her what epidemiology is, but how many of you here have at least heard the word epidemiology, right? Like we kind of, we, we have some understanding or we've heard of pandemic, right? Um, when the vaccine came out, we heard about immunity and herd immunity. We might not have known exactly what that was, but as a society, we know more now, largely because of our experience with COVID. And so I'm gonna take you today th with that centered, okay, um, with the centered, with us centering that we have some basic knowledge. I'm gonna take you today through the public health response to COVID-19, also talking about some of the lessons that we've learned, not all of them, but some of the public health lessons we've learned from COVID. Talk a little bit about what our new normal might look like. We are still in a global pandemic. People might not realize that, but we still are in it. 
but what is our new normal? And then talk about careers and jobs in the field of public health. So what is public health? Public health, by definition, is the science of protecting and improving the health of populations. The science of protecting and improving the health of populations. And that can be through education, through promoting healthy lifestyles, through research. It could be through detecting and preventing and responding to infectious diseases. But public health is very different from clinical care. Public health works with clinical care. Epidemiology is actually at the intersection of public health and clinical care. But clinical care is focused on treatment, whereas public health, we focus on prevention. So let's prevent disease and illness from happening in the first place. And if it does, then we rely on our partners in clinical care to help treat, diagnose, and treat. We also, in public health, focus on populations. In clinical care, it's usually one-to-one. -one. You have a clinician treating one patient at a time. In public health, our efforts are larger scale. So we really are looking at prevention versus treatment in populations versus individuals. Now, again, there's a lot of collaboration between clinical care and public health. How many of you have gone to a doctor that has said, you know, you should do X, Y, and Z to be healthier, right? Or had a clinician tell you, you know, I think you should get your vaccine, right? Vaccine, in essence, is public health, but the administration of that vaccine is actually clinical care. Now, when we talk about academic fields within public health, they're, they're numerous, right? We have heard of epidemiology or biostats, We've heard of, um, you know, environmental health or health policy, health administration. Parts of public health focus on humanitarian or human rights and social justice. Um, by, by, uh, by nature of the field, public health is rooted in social justice. Um, public health fields also include global health, maternal and child health, nutrition. So the field of public health is massive. Um, today, I'll be focusing a lot more on the field of public health that is rooted in epidemiology. So epi, or epidemiology, is the science behind public health. It is a very scientific, systematic, data-driven process in which we are studying how diseases happen. So we're studying the distribution or the patterns, as well as the determinants or the causes of diseases or health-related states um, in populations. Again, we're not talking about one-to-one -one here. We're talking about large-scale populations. And those populations could be the people in this room. It could be your neighborhood, your community. It could be your city, your state. It could be global. But again, we focus on a population. And we do that so we can control health problems. Okay, so think about public health in relation to the pandemic. Okay, because, or epidemiology. In general, the easy way or the more kind of direct way of thinking about what epidemiology is, is that it's the method to find the causes of health outcomes or diseases in populations. 
So the methods, the investigations that we do to understand why COVID happens, to understand why some people get heart disease and others don't, to understand the risk factors for diabetes, but then also how to prevent COVID, heart disease, diabetes. Okay, so public health is the field of prevention in populations. Epidemiology is the science behind that field. Any questions so far? Okay. I like to think of epi really as the intersection between public health and medicine. So every day we are influenced by public health, whether we see it or not. The air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the availability of healthcare, we aren't always interacting with the healthcare system, however, but the intersection of these two important fields really is this science of epi. And it is the science of epi that helped us quickly identify COVID-19 and have a response to COVID-19. So COVID-19 is the disease that is caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2. It was originated in December of 2019 in a market in Wuhan, China. Um, it is believed to be a zoonotic disease, so one that crossed over from primarily being found in animals to then crossing over and infecting humans. It is believed that the initial um, animal vector of COVID was actually a bat or a bat virus. We know the symptoms. COVID-19 has a wide variety of symptoms, but are largely respiratory in nature. COVID-19 is actually a coronavirus, and a coronavirus is typically a common cold. So coughing and congestion and maybe some other respiratory um, illnesses. COVID-19 is spread through tiny droplets. So you sneeze or you cough, droplets are expelled from your mouth or your nose. They are um, made, you, they make contact with another susceptible host, another person's mouth or nose, and then that's how transmission happens. Questions? Yes? Respiratory illness, would you think the respiratory illnesses now are based coming from that? Emerging respiratory illnesses are coming from COVID-19. I don't know. Um, can you give me an example of one of the emerging respiratory well, illnesses? <laughs> There's a lot of respiratory illnesses that are different than the norm. Those are the ones I'm talking about. They seem to last longer, don't yeah. go away, high, high fevers. <clears throat> there are a lot of theories about why we are seeing more virulent and new respiratory illnesses. They're actually, you know, from, from what I understand and what I've read, they're not entirely new per se. They might be a reemergent or some type of variant. Um, I think our immune systems are different.
I, I know that in particular with COVID, it does have, and this is why the prevention of COVID is so important, it does have effects on our immune system, um, which might make us more susceptible to some of the other respiratory illnesses that we're seeing. We also have been masked for two years um, and not uh, exposed to many of the typical and new viruses out there. Um, and so people are more susceptible that way. I cannot answer the question, however, of if any new emergent respiratory viruses that we're seeing are directly from COVID. The variants, yes. But these other respiratory illnesses, that I'm not sure of. Good question, though. Others? Okay. So, March 2020. We all remember what we were doing in March 2020. I remember what I was doing. I was teaching epidemiology to a group of undergraduate students. And I remember, actually, before March 2020, I had students say, what is going on? What is this virus, what is this coronavirus that we're seeing out of China? How serious is it? Do we have to be concerned? And those of us in this field said immediately, yes, we should be concerned. But January, February, and not really even until March, there was still this messaging that we don't have to be concerned. Um, I remember my students, we would, we would literally track COVID cases one at a time, looking and seeing what these cases looked like and where they were coming from. And I remember the day that the CDC had published and said, be prepared for a change in life as we know it. It was a change in life as we know it, right? They said, be prepared for a change in life as we know it. And one of my students said, what does that mean? And I said, be prepared. Our lives are going to change. So, at DePaul, in the Department of Health Sciences, we gave a talk on March 9th. And at that talk, I presented this map that showed 1,115 case, 1, cases in 38 states and 32 deaths. March, it was March 11th. The day that the World Health Organization, the WHO, declared COVID a global pandemic. Today, today, in the United States, we have over 103 million cases and 1.12 million deaths in two years. I remember counting these cases, thinking a thousand is a lot, and now we're at over 103 million. And if you think about it, so I got COVID, excuse me, last summer. I tested positive with an at-home antigen test, and I never reported that. Probably should have, right? But I didn't report it. So this number is largely underreported, considerably more, most likely, than 103 million. Worldwide, we have 673 million. 673 million cases of COVID-19 with 6.86 million deaths. COVID-19 has become the leading cause of death 
in a number of countries. So are we past the height of COVID-19? Probably yes. Are we past the pandemic? I would say not quite yet. And this, these trends show you, you know, we had times where we see, you know, upticks or surges. These are variants, surges and variants, and upticks and uh, surges globally as well. Questions? Okay. So our early response to COVID, we remember March 2020, shelter in place, don't go anywhere, isolate, stay home. Schools closed, some works closed, right? Workplaces were closed. Um, our first responders still going to work, healthcare professionals, people who are working service industry jobs, grocery stores, gas stations. If any of you worked or if any of your families worked as first responders or the first line of, def of defense, necessary, those necessary jobs, I thank you because you were at increased risk of developing COVID at a time where we didn't have much information about COVID. So at the very early responses, we sheltered in place. We quarantined the best that we could. It was mandated for most of us. In the state of Illinois, it was. We worried about transmission, but we worried about things like fomite transmission. How many of you were like wiping your mail right, or wiping your groceries. I know I was, because we thought that, that COVID-19 was transmitted through what we call objects or fomites. Now, the only way that we really have transmission through fomites is a perfect storm. A person sneezes on a piece of paper, and another person immediately goes and licks that piece of paper. Very rare for that to happen. But at the early stages of the pandemic, we thought fomite transmission was a risk. So we weren't masking, right? And part of the reason why we weren't masking is because the supply of PPE was really, really limited. We wanted to maintain that supply for people on the front lines working in hospitals and healthcare uh, settings. So the CDC said, nobody needs to wear a mask. And then more data came out and said, actually, this is a, a viral droplet transmission. Uh, uh, trans uh, this is droplet transmission, wear a mask, right? And then it went from wear any mask, make a mask if you can, to the paper masks and the cloth masks don't really work anymore. So now you have to wear the N95 or the KN95, right? So we saw shifts from our early response to what we know now. There was very little testing. You really could not get a test for COVID in the early stages of the pandemic unless you were really, really sick. There was no treatment in the early stages of the pandemic. Those early deaths were heartbreaking because many of those people died in ICUs alone or they, there weren't enough uh, ventilators. We saw that happening. So there was no treatment. There was no vaccine. There was hope of a vaccine, but there was no vaccine. 
We were concerned with people who had pre-existing conditions. We still are, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But we really thought that people who had asthma were at the highest risk. And we're seeing now that they are at risk, but actually there are other pre-existing conditions that are more risky for COVID-19. And then finally, there was a lot of mixed messaging from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, the leading public health agency in this country, saying you do have to wear a mask, or you don't have to wear a mask and then you do, or saying you should get tested and then you don't, right? Some of the, what were, do you all remember some of the messaging that was kind of confusing coming out of the CDC? Like, isolate for 14 days. No, just kidding, isolate for five right? Um, or COVID is not that big of a deal. By Easter, you'll all be filling churches. This mixed messaging, even from someone like me, who has a really strong public health background and actually really trusts and relies, the CDC, relies on the CDC, even I had apprehensions. Even I was frustrated. But we've learned some things over the past couple of years. First, we have updated guidelines. Our guidelines are rooted in evidence coupled with capitalism. Go back to work after five days of isolating if you're feeling better. I don't know about you, but everybody that I've talked to, including myself that has had COVID, does not feel better after five days. There's no testing mandate to go back. So sometimes we have to use these guidelines along with common sense, right, and additional scientific information that we might have. But the current CDC guideline says, if you test positive for COVID, stay home for at least five days. Also, if you have symptoms um, and you test negative, you should stay home. Or if you were exposed to someone with COVID and you don't have symptoms, but you're waiting for a test, stay home, right? They say you can end isolation after day five. When does day five start? I know when I had COVID, I was confused as to when my day one or day zero was, right? Because I was like, well, I, didn't, I actually didn't test positive for about three days, and then I tested positive for 14, right? So what was my day zero? I wasn't sure. So these are the mixed messaging guidelines that we're seeing, unfortunately, that are also, again, rooted in we need people to get back to work after five days. Okay. We do have a better understanding of transmission. Like I had said, there's little to no risk of fomite transmission. You can stop wiping your groceries and your mail. Um, COVID is spread through droplet transmission. We know that improved ventilation indoors helps to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Studies have shown that when we have improved ventilation, and a lot of places have actually put money and invested in better ventilation systems to help prevent the spread of infectious diseases. We also know that working outside or doing things outside lowers our risk. So having that outside, outdoor party or hanging out outside helped to improve uh, or lower our risk of COVID. Masks work. The science shows it, even if people don't believe it. We have seen countless situations 
and evidence that masking in certain areas, schools, churches, other indoor functions, when the community risk is high, has helped to prevent the spread of COVID indoors, right? Um, so we really pushed for elementary schools and grade schools and high schools to mask, and colleges to mask in those early stages when we were getting back um, to, to in-person school and in-person learning. Um, mask mandates, most of them have been lifted, as you see, um, except in healthcare settings. And that's not in every state. So public health, we have this, the, the CDC that is federal, but public health mandates and, and laws and policies and guidelines, those happen at the state level. So what is mandated in Illinois might be different than what's mandated in Florida, mandated in Florida. So you really have to be aware of what the mask and or the local mandates around public health are from, from state to state. In the state of Illinois, we've lifted most of the mask mandates, again, except for healthcare facilities. So when you go to the hospital or doctor or some long-term care facilities, nursing homes, you still have to wear a mask. Questions? Yeah. Wait, can microphone? Sorry. Um, I'm not really sure, just as a common person, sure. what droplet transmission means. Mm -hmm. For a while, when people who are anti-mask were saying, you know, it doesn't work unless you have this very specific grade of mask, but my understanding was that droplet transmission means it has to be on your breath, and then the mask would catch, like, whatever larger particle the COVID would actually be on, right? So... so Excellent question. We have two, two types of sort of like airborne transmission. One is airborne, where we have larger air particles that are expelled from a person through sneezing, coughing, um, talking, right? And they are a little bit lighter. So they linger in the air a little bit longer. And so they can linger and then, and they can actually travel farther, right? The measles is actually a perfect example of this. Measles are highly contagious because it is airborne. And so it hangs out in the air up to four hours later. Someone who is susceptible to measles or not vaccinated could actually get the measles from someone who was in a room four hours before. Those are heavier air particles. Droplets are, or I'm sorry, lighter air particles. Droplets are heavier. Okay, they are, they, they are, they vary in size depending on the virus, but they are, they're heavier. So what happens is they can travel a certain distance and then they fall to the ground and usually not viable anymore, right? That's why we said six feet, right? That's why everybody's saying six feet. Six feet seem to be the, the appropriate distance for a COVID droplet to be able to infect another susceptible person, right? So the, those are the two, two types of like airborne, air, air related transmission. COVID is believed to be droplet. There's some indication that there's some airborne nature of COVID, but it really is droplet. So we're really talking about these close distances between people. What the mask does is it prevents, not all, but it prevents some spread of those droplets because the mask is, I mean, just like kind of think about it. the mask is covering the portal by which the droplets are expelling 
out into the air. Now, if you have two people that are wearing a mask, a high-quality mask, you've got almost 100% protection of, uh, you know, uh, transmission. If you have one person wearing, if the wearer has a really high-quality mask, their chances of being protected are, you know, I, I forget the numbers, but in the 90s. And then the, when the quality of your mask starts to go down, the um, protection rate starts to go down as well. So to answer your question, some droplets for certain viruses can actually get through a mask. When you have the really high-quality, super tight woven masks, those are like really, really uh, uh, efficient at preventing the spread. Um, when you have multiple people wearing, you know, when you've got more than one person wearing, it also improves the efficacy or the efficiency of the mask. Um, Any, anything I have heard around masks don't work um, has not, it, is, it, is, it has been anecdotal, and it hasn't been rooted in scientific evidence. Um, did that answer your question? Are you sure? Okay, good. So the quality of the mask, the type of virus, right? Like some viruses are going to be um, too virulent for certain masks. So the type of mask um, and the virus, those are some of the, the deciding factors on how well a mask works. Good question. Yeah. I have another question. Yes. How would, um, how would let's say, your N95 Yeah, the, the, the material, the tightly woven nature, the, the production. Yes, so the question was, how does the N95 mask differ from like a regular cloth mask? Um, and it really is the, the uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, the layers, like the opaqueness of the mask, right? The, the strength of the mask is based on the... Um, like how well the droplets or the airborne particles can pass through the mask. And the N95 has the strongest um, uh, sort of layer or protection, if that makes sense. That's why when we saw variants of COVID that were really virulent, so really strong, really contagious, the mask recommendations actually shifted. Um, because studies had shown that cloth masks and even your re regular surgical masks were not as efficient at uh, mitigating the spread. So the quality of the mask really does make a difference because of the way the mask is made, the layers, um, you know, and the ab ability of the droplets to transmit through the mask. Good question. Any others? You can ask another one. Let me know if, you have, if it comes back to you. Um, we've also learned that testing, at the very beginning, almost non-existent. Now, testing is wi widely available, and it's actually encouraged. So we have two different types of viral tests that detect SARS-CoV-2, the PCR. That one is conducted in a lab. It is the most accurate. It actually can test individuals before they're symptomatic, um, and it 
uh, detects genetic material in an infected person for up to 90 days after. So really sensitive tests in the PCR. The antigen test is a rapid test, different technology. It's administered either by a healthcare professional or those are the ones that we get um, and we take at home. Um, it is less accurate, especially if somebody is asymptomatic, but still useful. Um, particularly if, you know, hey, you're going to go hang out with grandma and grandma is um, high risk and you want to make sure that you don't have COVID, right? Like you go to school and work and you hang out and you just want to make sure that you don't have COVID. So when you go see grandma, you don't put her at risk. Taking an antigen test will determine if you are contagious at that moment um, and your risk level. Now, I would suggest if grandma's high risk, you go visit grandma after taking a test and then wear a mask, right? Um, but these are just the different layers. Um, if you are, so some of the guidelines is that if you are symptomatic, you test immediately with an antigen or a PCR test. Or if you were exposed and you're asymptomatic, then you wait five days. Uh, the PCR test is a little bit harder because you have to actually go to a healthcare facility. Some um, facilities require a doctor's order for the PCR test, but the antigen tests are widely available. Um, and even some insurances cover uh, uh, monthly antigen tests. Um, treatment, we actually have treatment now. We didn't have treatment at the start of the pandemic. We have three approved antiviral medications. Um, Paxlovid and remdesivir, those can be used on um, adults as well as children, I think, over the age of 12, whereas um, malnupiravir can only be used for adults, okay? But there are treatments. The treatments aren't going to necessarily cure you of COVID, but they will shorten the time that you have uh, symptoms. Typically, treatment has been shown to lessen the severity of your symptoms and actually lessen the risk of long COVID, okay? We've also learned that individuals with pre-existing conditions are still at risk. We really thought that COVID was just, like it is viral, okay, or, or respiratory in nature, but we thought it would only affect pre-existing conditions around respiration, so asthma patients, right, people with COPD. But we have actually found that the, the people with pre-existing conditions that have died from COVID, the highest rates are among people with diabetes. Diabetic patients with COVID had the highest mortality compared to any other pre-existing condition. Um, it is largely because we are seeing that COVID has pretty substantial vascular effects on our body. Um, we are seeing that some long COVID symptoms are vascular or cardiovascular in nature. Some individuals tend to have um, newly diagnosed heart issues that they didn't have prior to COVID. We also see long COVID or it's called post-acute sequelae SARS-CoV-2, uh, where you have COVID symptoms for at least three months after your acute COVID illness, um, some people have it for much longer, and it is believed that over 16 million people in the United States suffer from long COVID. Some other symptoms of long COVID that I've read about, fogginess, inability to think clearly, fatigue, um, a lot of people have GI issues, again, the cardiovascular 
Um, I had I had bronchitis twice in two months, two mo uh, one month after COVID. And I really think that I, I never get bronchitis. And I really think that it was related to, to COVID. So we don't know a whole lot about long COVID just yet, but we are learning more. And providers are shifting kind of the way they see COVID patients or, you know, long COVID patients and the treatment options for COVID, long COVID patients um, because we are seeing so many people affected by it. Yeah. So no, the the your the incubation period for COVID is typically two to fourteen days. So after that fourteen days, you are not contagious. The question was, are you still considered viral when you have long COVID? And the answer is no. These are subsequent symptoms as a result of that initial infection. Yeah. You said that um, it's highest rates are among diabetics. That's a good question. I, I believe type 2, but I have to double check on that. Um, and it, it is most likely having to do with inflammation, right? So both the, the uh, type 2 diabetes and the heart disease that we are seeing with long COVID um, and the effects of COVID have to do with, with the inflammatory response. And we are seeing that people, so it is the highest rates of mortality were among, of people who had comorbidities, so who were sick with other things. We saw the highest rates among those with diabetes. And again, probably because of an inflammatory immune response. Okay, finally. What else have we learned over the past two years? We still have mixed messaging from the CDC. We still have these recommendations that we're not sure about. But two years later, I encourage us to try to gain trust back in our public health officials and agencies. We know more now. They are trying harder to be better at the way they message, at the way they communicate, at the way they educate, and also make some of their public health policies and recommendations. So my suggestion to you is don't write off the CDC. They are still the leading experts in public health in this country, if not globally. Gaining back that trust is gonna be important, but awareness is key. So coming to talks like this, I love to see you all here. Um, don't believe everything you read. Vet that information. Do your due diligence when you're reading even scientific articles, right? Um, I love TikTok. I'm going to admit it. I, I spend hours on TikTok like everyone else. There are some really great influencers on TikTok who have the credentials and the knowledge and the expertise to share what they're sharing. And there are a lot of people who don't. Vet that information. Determine how accurate it is. Seek out different forms of information. It's really easy for us to confirm our bias. So easy. This is what I think. So I'm gonna look up all the things and read all of the information that confirms what I think. 
go one step further than that. Because this day and age, 100%, I believe that misinformation, vaccines don't work or they cause X, Y, and Z. Masks cause respiratory issues. COVID is not a big deal. That misinformation is really the biggest threat to public health today. Not another global pandemic, although that is a threat. But our current threat, as a result of the pandemic that we are experiencing, is misinformation. Questions? Yeah. Any thoughts on what the next pandemic will be? Oh, gosh. Um, probably zoonotic in nature as well, um, but I, I don't, I don't know. You know, and, and so we had the flu, the Spanish flu of 1918, right? And that was about 100 years later, we had COVID. Um, but we had many um, emergent infectious diseases and um, outbreaks between that. I don't know what I think the next one's going to be. I do think it's going to be zoonotic. Um, in nature, though. So, again, passed from animals. So, I think COVID in Japan has become like big again. So, Japan's <clears throat> come over to the US or not? Yeah, I, there's always the risk of that. There's always the risk the of that. Repeat the question. So, the question was we're seeing um, increased uh, rates in Japan, um, and will we see that in the United States? There's always the possibility of that. Um, and it really depends on our, our mitigation efforts, right? How, so for me, um, I mask in certain places. I do. Uh, I avoid certain, friend had a holiday party in December. I knew no one would be masked. I knew windows would not be open. I didn't go. Right? And so I think the reason why I bring this up is I think that we have to make decisions based on what is happening currently. So right now we're seeing relatively low rates of community transmission in our area. So not wearing a mask, if you're, you know, if you're feeling okay and people seem to be relatively healthy, can be a good decision. But if we start to see high rates again as a result of what's happening in Japan, then we might have to take some you know, serious mitigation, make some serious mitigation changes. I was more concerned with seeing the effects of the increased rates in China, but we didn't actually see that, surprisingly. Yeah. So how you said that misinformation is one of the biggest threats to public health. Would you consider that the Yeah, so the question was, do, talking about misinformation, do I think the CDC was guilty of sharing misinformation? That is a really good question and a really tricky one for me to answer. I don't know that it was intentional misinformation. I think it was um, a, a lack of information to some extent. 
I have more faith in the CDC than to think that they would intentionally uh, launch a misinformation campaign. But similar to what you said, I think the way to combat it is uh, being more intentional and diligent in, in the information that we're, we're absorbing and reading and believing. Yeah, yeah. I can understand why someone might do that, but then afterwards I feel like that's the point where we might step down or like, you know, some weakening from legitimacy. Yeah. For, um, like what, what can people look yeah. for? Again, it's hard. So the question was, in the early stages of the pandemic, Dr. Fauci said, don't mask, they're not reliable, and then later admitted that part of the reason why he said that was to what I had said earlier, to uh, maintain that supply of masks for the individuals who were on the front lines, um, and should he have stepped down for spreading such misinformation? I, I don't know. My guess is that it was a combination of different things. So remember, this was a novel virus. We had never seen this virus ever before. We weren't sure about the transmission. We, even some experts probably weren't sure how, how efficient the masks would have been. Was he basically, you know, again, I can't answer that because I don't have him here. I can only speculate that was he basing that recommendation on a number of other factors. Maybe right now it doesn't seem as contagious or seem that serious. Maybe the administration, the president at the time, told him to say it. I don't know. Um, I can't answer that. Was it, was it incorrect? Yes. Did he know it to the extent that we think he knew it at that time? I don't know. Okay. Another thing that we know a little bit more about are vaccines. So there are four types available in the US. The Pfizer and the Moderna are mRNA. Uh, Novavax is a protein subunit vaccine. And then we have the Johnson's and Johnson's, which is a viral vector vaccine. And it's only given in certain situations for, for individuals who can't take any of the other two. Um, we do know now that we have the updated bivalent booster available to everyone if you haven't gotten it. Um, but here's some vaccine data. So COVID vaccine data as of uh, last week. In the, uh, this is in the United States. Um, roughly 86% over the age of five have had one dose. 73% of the United States is fully vaccinated. That's an amazing number. Um, and then uh, people with the booster, with an updated booster, that bivalent booster is 16.8%. And then um, this is a worldwide trend of COVID uh, vaccine administration. And we are definitely seeing a decrease in that trend. Um, the only way, so I don't know if you remember back, that, back when, you know, oh, get the vaccine, we're going to reach herd immunity. If we reach herd immunity, we'll be able to totally eradicate COVID, right? I don't know if you remember hearing those things. We will never reach a level of herd immunity because we didn't vaccinate enough people in the general population quick enough, right? Which I'm going to talk about is our new normal. So 
As difficult and controversial as it is to actually pinpoint when a vaccine starts or a pandemic starts, it's equally controversial and difficult to pinpoint when it ends. What we want to see is us going from a pandemic, which is a global outbreak. Pandemic is an increase in the number of cases of a disease to proportions that are not normal for a certain population. We want to see us go from pandemic to endemic, which is where we have sort of your habitual or just kind of your normal level of, of a disease. The flu was once a pandemic. It is now endemic. It's not gone. We still see it, but there's, there are these levels that are expected or normal. Now, I would say that the ways that we go from pandemic to endemic are rooted in our behavior. So when we do see surges, do we do something about it? But we are also going to be looking at numbers. So when we start to see the trend continue to go down and stay down and, and uh, kind of you know, plateau, then we can have more confidence that we're in endemic stages, but also predictability. When we can predict what COVID is going to look like in different populations, the way we can predict what COVID looks like around, or what uh, the flu looks like, then we can say that we're in more endemic proportions. The height of the pandemic, is it over? I believe so, yes. I hope so. Is it over as a, a pandemic, though? Not quite yet, in my opinion. Okay. Um, and so endemic diseases still do require attention. This is just uh, really quickly the hospitalizations, the illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths from flu still high, right? Um, so I would say that the reason why we want to take COVID seriously is because people can get really sick. People are still dying, and long COVID is affecting millions of people, right? And it can affect our ability to live and work so, um, in the interest of time, I'm going to move to this. So what, well, I'm going to go right here. So it was not a matter of if, but it was a matter of when. And so the question here was, what's the next one? I don't know, and I don't want to predict it. Um, but I just want to point this out. We need a strong, skilled public health workforce. I'm part of it. I'd love for you to be part of it that are comprised of people who are socially just, active, compassionate, and willing to commit their lives and careers to improving the public's health. So some of the careers in public health, these are just some, include the following, right? Everywhere from a first responder, someone who inspects restaurants to make sure that what where you're eating is safe and following codes, to epidemiologists who are the researchers, who are the investigators, who are investigating health issues, the causes and the, the ways to prevent, even uh, policymakers, right? So people who are actually affecting the, the policy that implements 
and mandates public health. Some of the job activities, everything from studying toxins and environmental, you know, the impacts on people, the impacts of the environment on health, to undertaking screening programs for cancer in um, high-risk populations, right? To people who would advo will advocate for the health of vulnerable populations. Questions about the career fields and then the career activities. And there are actually ways to get there. Moraine Valley has a Department of Health Sciences, a very impressive one. I looked at it. Um, so an associate's in a degree like health sciences can be one of the trajectories towards a career in public health. You can also get a bachelor's degree now in public health. When I was starting off, I couldn't get a bachelor's degree in public health. There was no such thing. Now there are accredited programs for a bachelor's in science in public health or health sciences. So through my department at DePaul, you can get a bachelor's in health sciences and focus on public health, and we send a lot of our students off to graduate school um, or jobs in the field in public health. Then there's the graduate level of either getting an MPH, which is a master's in public health, or an MS, which is a master's in science in public health, or then you can go on to get a doctorate. There are also a lot of joint programs out there. So nursing and public health, P MD public health, MBA public health, law school and public health. There are a ton of joint programs um, for people that are interested in careers in the field of public health. Okay. I wish we could have spent a little more time on this, but I ask if you have any questions, please share them with me now. Um, I, I end with one of my favorite quotes from former Surgeon Gen General C. Everett Koop. And he said, healthcare is vital to all of us some of the time. But public health is vital to all of us all of the time. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, our availability and accessibility to health care, that affects us all the time. Health care, vitally important, works with public health. That is vital to us some of the time. Okay? Yes. Yes. That is true. So there are there are actually time schedules for getting the vaccines. Um, studies have shown that getting it. Uh, so if you got the second dose, or if you were infected with COVID you should wait at least three months before getting a booster um, or whatever the schedule is for you. So you definitely should wait. Um, there is some evidence that there is natural immunity from COVID. So there's also that. So you want to extend your immunity. You can wait the three months after you've had COVID and then get your booster at the three-month mark. Um, but it also makes the booster more effective. You can wait longer, but then your risk of infection is higher. And there's probably going to be a time where we are getting an annual COVID shot.
similar to what we do with the flu vaccine, right? These, uh, these boosters, the second doses and these boosters have really been in response to the, the variants that we've seen. Um, but we, we are hopefully going to see less variants and be able to predict the variants and strains and then have one singular COVID vaccine every year. Other questions? Thank you so okay. much. How about a round of applause? You're an amazing thank you. audience. Thank you. Thank you. And my information is on here if you have any questions, if you want to reach out, ask questions about public health or